Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, let's do it. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, y'all, I'm David Summers, and welcome in. It's the story of wrestling in America, as told by the Tennessee stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now, we step back into the ring and back into time. Let's get wall-to-wall, treetop tall, with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller hanging out in the great smoky mountains of Tennessee. Hey stud, what's going on? Oh, Jason, man. It's beautiful. Pretty weather, nice blue skies. Uh, temperatures are cool, man. Going down to 53, man. Wow. Uh, uh I love it. You know, you open your windows and it's a it's a it's quite a, quite a treat, man. I really, really am glad to be back up here in the mountains, man. That's why you live where you live in the sweetheart of Tennessee, as opposed to maybe southeast Alabama where I am or St. Petersburg by now. We're in the nineties, of course. So we're feeling it and the humidity is right at home here where we are. All right. Hey, listen, you you've got some plans for Father's Day. What are you gonna be doing? Yeah, I think, man, I'm, I'm heading up to Kentucky. I'm going to see my son and my grandson. I uh, get a chance to see my grandson play some basketball. Uh, he just started dunking, man. Wow. In his freshman year, end of his freshman year. He's, so uh, I may slide up there with him and uh, three generations get together. Uh, wow. Now we're having this big battle, man, between the three of us is who's the tallest. <laughs> and I think my grandson is about to win the whole deal, man. He's, he's about to go ahead of me and my son. All right. Remind uh, us. It's always fun when you remind us. How old is he now? He's uh, 16. He's 16. 16 years and old and uh, he's about, he's a good 6'9". He may be 6'10 now. Wow. Weighs about 240 pounds. And, <laughs> oh, he's a, he's a hoss, man. So. So yeah, I might be headed to Kentucky, man, uh, to, to spend a spend a little uh, time on Father's Day up there. Man, I hope you can do that. I hope you get down to the floor with them boys and show them that fuller leg lock again, and and make them just remind them who Daddy is. <laughs> get a scream or two. Huh? There you go. So, but but that's cool. You're gonna see him play basketball. Yeah, yeah. He he plays all summer long, man. He's in these uh these leagues. He's uh. He's going to be. I think he's going to have a, a career. He might make a make it as a pro, even possibly. So, you know, uh, that's 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 the that's the game plan for him. That's fantastic. So we'll figure and, out uh, 
If he can't do that, might make a wrestler out of him. He's liable to be about seven foot two and uh, three hundred and eighty pounds or something. Wow, too big for basketball. And remind us again, his name is Charles, right? Charles. Yep. That's right. That's what I thought. All right, that's awesome. And hope you, hopefully, you guys get to spend some time together over the the Father's Day weekend. All right, listen, Stud. I got. Who am I to tell you? These Studcasts have become the talk of wrestling fans everywhere. Since we've gotten into 1979 and now the Knoxville wrestling war on top of that stud cast, just they simply get more interesting because of all the drama that's happening inside every episode. So to make that happen, you have completely dropped the secretive kayfabe curtain that was always there back in the old school days. And fans are now enjoying knowing what was going on behind the curtain, per se, back then, and they're getting a clear vision of it right now. I think that is so cool. You deserve a lot of credit for that, Ron. Well, man, uh, everything about the sport, Dave, has, has certainly changed, man, since those days. And this is just a natural progression, man. Kind of feels good to be open with the listeners and finally uh, get this story from 44 years ago off my back, man. Well, I mean, this is, I've never really talked about it. And, uh, this is my opportunity and I intend to take advantage of it. I've, li- I've lived with it, man, too long. It's hard <laughs> to imagine. Uh, when we, uh, you know, when we've talked openly about it already, uh, it, it, basically this is just the beginning of this Knoxville war. So there's, uh, we're just getting into it, man. Oh, no doubt. The title of this studcast, number 303, this is number 303. Can you believe that? It really says it all in the title. Southeastern versus All-Star and Hulk versus Idol. The Hulk versus Idol, part of that title is kind of, I guess you would say, taking a backseat to what was happening in Tennessee. But something really big was also going on in that Gulf Coast territory. And thankfully for you, unlike Knoxville... It was something really cool, really good. Yeah, I think, you know, thank goodness for that, man. You know, if it if it wasn't for Gulf Coast during this time uh, and then if what was going on down there, I might just walked away from the sport forever. You know, it was it was hard dealing with the, a wrestling war. Uh, it was every owner's worst nightmare having a war in his territory. Luckily, I was only 31 years old and. I'd at that point tasted a little success in uh, both of those territories, and and I just wasn't ready to quit, especially under those circumstances. So you had the good vibes coming out of, say, the Gulf Coast Territory and the bad vibes maybe brewing in East Tennessee. So with that in mind, where are we going to start this ride today? How do we How do we get on the trail? Well, I think we're going to stir that uh, brewing pot, man, in Tennessee first. So we'll take a big, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take a, a big portion of last week's studcast. And uh, we took a lot of it last week, just trying to cover most of the bad things that were happening in Knoxville. And we have a lot more to discuss this week. I mean, uh, this thing is not over. It's, you know, the Knoxville Five, they were fanning the flames of the war, man. It was uh, only the beginning. So hopefully we can ride a lot further today before the end of this one. And if we do, uh, we'll get down there in the southeastern Gulf Coast. It has a great card down there in this one that has a little bit of everything on it. Uh, we got a new southeastern champion down there, the second different one in two weeks. 
uh, two title matches on that card down there, twins on that card, and a 650-pound bear and a referee wrestling along with, uh, you know, uh, Bill Spears and Eddie Sullivan. So uh, it's a uh, – and if that, you know, if we can get that far, the TV show and the results of that card and the attendances, uh, and if that doesn't get us to the end, we might have a shot at another lurking tree, man. You know, it's no wonder so many new people are joining us every week. I can't believe you you can pack as much as you do into one hour, and you certainly do a great job at that. So before we begin with this week's card, for those that might not have heard last week's studcast, let's go back to that just for a second, if we can, to the bomb that you dropped on us just before the break, right at the end of the first part of the studcast last week. An article in the Knoxville newspaper that was placed by the Knoxville Five. Yeah, I kind of thought you might go back there, Dave, you Mm -hmm. know, and and I don't mind, you know, uh, because I was kind of planning on it myself. And it was an article in the sports page of the newspaper next to the ad that I always ran every week to promote the matches for the Friday night card. And uh, in the five years since I had arrived in Knoxville, I always looked every week at our ad. I mean, you pay the money for that ad. You want to see what it looks like. And uh, you want to make sure it's there, for one thing. And there was always this article next to the ad. It was a little thing called right or wrong. And it didn't mean like R-I-G-H-T. It was W-R-I-T-E, right mm-hmm. or wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, so you get fans out there, not just fans, but people that uh, wanted to write something in the paper about it had to do for sports. So I'd never before seen anything there in that five years that had anything to do with wrestling. And suddenly on the first weekend of the Knoxville Five having their first matches, there was comments from a wrestling fan. And this fan said, I was the owner of Southeastern Wrestling. I told the wrestlers who was going to win and lose and paid them. And I had already harassed some of the New company's fan. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously that information had to come from the Knoxville Five. How can, you, no how can you live with yourself, Stud? <laughs> I mean, you know, where else is a fan going to know about this, you know? <laughs> uh, so, you know, nobody had ever written about it in the newspaper. No, I'd never told anybody about it even, you know, and only the wrestlers knew about it. And they knew that I owned company, and they, and you know, and some of that information disclosed in the article. Uh, why would it happen? Why would it even happen now? I, I know, but I mean, in my opinion, telling that type of information was one of the worst things that they could have possibly done, and it happened only two days before before their opening night. What a coincidence, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it was just the beginning, Dave. I mean, of their, man, their destructive way. They were were really basically going to kill wrestling in that part of the country. So one week later, uh, you know, the week that uh, we'll be talking about in this podcast, a different fan sent something for the same little right or wrong article. You know, and uh, and I got a great friend that helps me with uh, finding old cards and anything I need. A guy named Ed Harrison, a great guy. Uh, he recently found a copy of one of these right or wrong articles. It was actually the second one that was written about wrestling, and he sent it to me. And uh, obviously, this came from a different fan, and uh, it kind of answered the other fan's letter from the week before. 
So I think I, I thought I would read that one on this show today, you know, and uh, and it's it's very short and it says, Dear Sir, I have I have been a wrestling fan ever since I was a little girl. I don't like uh, what's being said about Ron Fuller. First of all, you recently published a letter from a fan saying Ron Fuller was the owner of Southeastern Wrestling. Les Thatcher is the promoter, not Ron, which I love that. I mean, you know, fans don't have any idea who the promoter or the owner is, right? Right. So, uh, and then she continues and she said, personally, I think the four wrestlers that revolted should be the ones knocked and not Ron. Uh, the wrestling that they started isn't covered by the National Wrestling Alliance. And as far as Ron harassing the fans at their matches, he couldn't have possibly done that. He was wrestling in Marstown on the same night as it was having those matches. So, so her name was De- Debbie Lifford, Lifford, I guess it would be, Greenback in Tennessee. So, you know, uh, there's a great example of what happens to fans in a wrestling war. Everybody has a different story. Mm-hmm. Uh, fans get mm-hmm. so emotionally involved when they see some of their wrestling friends support the other company. Right. Uh, when they, you know, have no way of knowing what was really going on. And soon, man, the fun of attending wrestling matches starts to disappear a little bit. They take the side of one company or the other, you know, which is, <laughs> you know, they don't have the money to go to both. So they're going to buy one ticket for one company rather than the other probably. Mm-hmm. And as the war stretches out, their loyalty kind of wanes. And then, uh, and then the, they become confused about who to support, you yeah. know, what yeah. they, and eventually this, their once profound interest in the sport, this dies. Well, you know what it reminds me of? Tennessee versus Alabama in football or Alabama versus Auburn. That's what it reminds me of. And people take a, they will take a side. If they're passionate about it, they jump in there on it and, and it's once they once the, it seems like once they take a side, it's hard to move them. Right, that's and true. really, that that's a great explanation the way you laid it out of what happens to fans in a in a wrestling war. So, I mean, again, they get emotionally involved. I'm glad we revisited that first letter. So, how about the next card? That next card back into the Knoxville Coliseum, Friday, June twenty twenty second of seventy nine. With Ted Allen, who actually trained Arn Anderson, man. <laughs> man, I'd like to throw that in because uh, uh, every time I think about uh, Ted Allen training Arn Anderson, it's difficult for me to <laughs> keep from having a smile, a little giggle about it, you know. <laughs> anyway, Ted Allen opened up the card against Larry Cheatham, and uh, there was a one-night tournament to crown the new Southeastern Tag Champions. And in the first of these three tournament matches that were on this card, the Hollywood Connection, David Schultz and Eddie Mansfield down there in the southeastern Gulf Coast for just about the first year that we were there, we're going to be wrestling Jimmy Golden and Dean Ho in that first match. And in the second tournament match, Thor Tanaka and Mr. Fuji, who's going to be managed by Gorgeous George Jr., going to be facing me and my father, Buddy Fuller. Uh, in uh, return to the United States Junior Heavyweight Championship, the champions Kevin Sullivan was defending against Tony Charles. Uh, the winners of the earlier two tag matches were going to be the next match on the card. And then we were going to find out who was going to be the new Southeastern Tag Team Champions out of that match. Then the last match of the night was it's time in for the end of this 
boat tournament that has been going on for months. It's beautiful bayliner boat. And uh, so this was going to be a round robin, all against all match. The Mongolian Stomper had beaten me the week before, and their gorgeous and their Dick Slater and Crusher Blackwell had wrestled to a draw. So there's three guys left in this rather than two, like there should have been. So there was going to be a round robin all against all match, uh, all three of them against each other. The first man that can beat the other two back to back is going to win the boat. All right. So that's a lot going on right there. That's a really good card. A championship tag team tournament, a U.S. junior championship match, and a first ever round robin match with the winner motoring away in a fantastic boat. How cool is that? All right. That had to be a really a good TV show to get it all set up. Everything that's happening right there. That had to be a good show. Well, there were three major things basically happening on this card, you know, and they were all three going to get covered, obviously, on the TV. And it opened up with one of the tag teams in the upcoming tournament. They were already in the ring as soon as the show opened. Uh, they, they had been a team uh, that hadn't lost since their arrival in Tennessee. This was about their fourth week in the territory. They had not been beat. There was Dr. D, David Schultz, and Eddie Mansfield. And they had renamed themselves the Hollywood Connection. And then the first round opponents, their opponents, Jimmy Golden and Dean Ho, they were at the set with Les. They were going to watch and make comments on the match, and they were going to comment about the other two tournament teams. So Schultz and Mansfield had a lot of heat. In, sp in spite of being, uh, you know, the fact that they had been there for all four weeks, and they were on the first match every week, and that was because, guess who, Bob Roop had booked them there. And obviously, he didn't want the emphasis to be on those guys, and he wanted to keep it on the Knoxville Fives. So both Golden and Dean Ho, they were very impressed with the, the team that they, they watched the match, and uh, and it was going to be the team that they would be facing in the first round on the following Friday night. And Schultz really got their attention at the end of the match, man. <laughs> he shot the guy in, and he clotheslined the guy so hard. He turned him a complete flip, and the guy landed on his face, face first. And uh, Schultz just walked over, and the guy rolled over on his back, and Schultz just put his foot down in his chest and stood there and got the three counts. Uh, <laughs> what's typical of Schultz, though. Yeah, I kind of remember, remember seeing a lot of that before Schultz left the Gulf Coast. All right, so how about the second match? Well, the very popular Tony Charles, uh, you know, he was getting his second chance to win Kevin Sullivan's United States Junior Championship belt, you know. And he and Les uh, watched the video from the night before where Sullivan and him had wrestled for the first time for uh, Sullivan's belt. And uh, Sullivan, for the first time, used his foot uh, on the bottom rope to get a win over Tony Charles. So, uh you know, and that kind of just silenced the crowd the last the, the last week we were in Chilhowee Park. And, I mean, they didn't know what, what the heck did Kevin do. He cheated, you know. And uh, so the studio was ready when Tony went to the ring, man. They erupted. And, and at the end of that match, you know, with Charles, he did that beautiful move. I called it uh, moonsault. I couldn't. I'd never seen this before. And uh, he was the only guy I ever saw do this. And uh, he ended up uh, monkey flipping 
a guy at the end of it. And he monkey flipped this guy up into the studio lights. In fact, one of his feet hit one of the studio lights, which was probably 12 feet above the ring at least. <laughs> I mean, wow, he, he shot him into orbit. <laughs> and uh, so the love affair between Tony Charles and Tennessee fans was on again, man. Tony was always over there. They loved him there. So uh, it was, uh, it, you know, it, it, then, it, then we got to our personality profile. And uh, this one, one more time, we went back to that Bayliner boat that was going to be given away the next Friday night. And uh, we went out there about two days before the TV show. And the lake, Norris Lake, was as beautiful as the day the video was recorded. And that lake was always gorgeous. But that day, it was really beautiful. Uh, Dick Slater, Crusher Blackwell, and the Mongolian Stomper. Uh, through his mouthpiece, George, George Jr., all of them made interviews from the boat at different times that day. And then let's explain uh, the first time ever, round robin rules perfectly. All against all, first man to beat both opponents back to back, won the boat. The Bayliner Boat Company was very happy with this entire promotion. <laughs> and uh, so was the studio crowd that loved the, the uh the actual profile itself, and they they gave it a big round of applause at the end of the video, at the end of the profile. That was kind of unusual, too. And I'm not sure, Dave, but it, it may have been the most expensive and unusual prize ever given away in wrestling, in the sports history. That wow. Boat. Wow. Wow. Hey, and, and the thing is, I remember some really big Southeastern Gulf Coast, Gulf Coast prizes that were going to wrestlers. I'm talking back in the in the 80s. Cadillacs. I remember a Corvette one time. A Nissan. Remember when the Nissan 280 was a hot the 280Z was a hot automobile. One of those was given away. Several beautiful the conversion vans. I always thought, yeah, I bet the wrestlers would love to be going down the road on a conversion van. And then even a couple of Broncos, two Broncos in one night in a tag team tournament. One vehicle to each tag team winner. That's big time. Well, I mean, we were doing some crazy things. That's for sure. There wasn't very many territories that were doing those type of deals. Uh, we did some huge events. Uh, but this boat was definitely the biggest of them all, basically, uh, cost-wise, for darn sure. So let's talk about the rest of that TV. The third match was Kevin Sullivan wearing his U.S. junior heavyweight belt into the ring. And uh, he got himself a win over Larry Cheatham, who was a guy that's going to be on the opening match on the following Friday night. And uh, then he did his interview after the match, and he admitted, basically, uh, to Les, he said, yeah, I cheated. You know, and he says, I beat Tony Charles last night, and I sure did, and I used my foot on the ropes. And he goes, and he says, you know, I'm going to tell you the truth, uh, you know, Les, I, I want to be honest here. Uh, uh, this belt is very dear to me, man. It's the biggest title, he said, I've ever won so far. And he said, I'm going to tell you what, next Friday night, if I have to, I'll be putting my feet on the ropes again to keep it. So the last match on the TV was the fans' first look at my partner in the upcoming tournament. Uh, he was 52 years old. <laughs> but, but he didn't look it. He was in good shape because he had his own wrestling school. <laughs> and he did the training at the school himself, <laughs> and he really was—he couldn't wait to get in the ring, and and that was my father, buddy Ford. <laughs> so you know, while while making a couple of young op opponents uh, do some screaming, he and I, 
a gorgeous George Jr. Uh, set out there, uh, you know, uh, and he uh, he was fresh back from Memphis. He'd been in that territory, him and Mongolian Stomper, since the early part of 1979 when uh, we sent those guys to Memphis. Uh, he had returned to Knoxville, and uh, he was going to be handling a new tag team, Tanaka and Mr. Fuji, through that also coming out of Memphis. And uh, so they were at the set, and uh, Gigi just started right out as soon as we started wrestling. I didn't see this until after we got back. My dad and I watched this again because they we taped these shows, and they showed back about two hours after we taped them. And uh, Gigi was really upset with my choice of apartment, saying my dad would in, had injured more wrestlers and broken more legs than probably any wrestler in history. And, uh, you know, he said, I, I kind of fear for my, my Japanese team. He goes, I know that they're, they're the strongest Japanese team in the world and they're really great. And then he goes, uh, but no matter what, you know, they're going to leave the Coliseum next Friday night with those belts. But, uh, Gigi wasn't so happy about what was going on. So, and, uh, as GB, Gigi's making his point about us breaking legs, that's how we ended the match. About the same time he's saying that, we put the, Fuller leg lock on both those guys. <laughs> Got to win with the uh, same thing Gigi's complaining about. All right, so that was uh, just as loaded as uh, as the card it promoted, no doubt. All right, so what happened six days later in the Coliseum? Well, Ted Allen got a win over Larry Cheatham, and in the first tag team tournament match, David Schultz and Eddie Mansfield beat Jimmy Golden and Dean Ho. And uh, in the next tournament match, my father and I, we won the match over toward Tanaka and Mr. Fuji when gorgeous George Jr. Uh, was forced to save his team from defeat, and he intentionally got them disqualified. Uh, but that got our hand raised. That sent us on to the next round. But he also paid the price for us. <laughs> when he got into the ring to get him disqualified, Dad knocked him into the second row of ringside. <laughs> was like, oh, I got a big laugh out of that. So Tony Charles regained his his long lost United States junior title, Kevin Sullivan. And he did it in the same way Sullivan had beat him the week before. He put his foot on the ropes to beat Sullivan to win the belt. So my father and I, you know, we had won the Southeastern belts. Uh, we went and uh, won again against Schultz and Mansfield. And uh, but the main event day from this one was special, man. It was a thrilling main event. <laughs> well, you know, I'd never, I had never seen one of these matches before. The Mongolian Stomper was the first to draw his name from out of the hat, <laughs> and uh, he picked Crusher Blackwell to begin the match, uh, and uh, so he beat his first opponent. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Blackwell actually won the first match between him and Mongolian Stomper. And then he had to wrestle Dick Slater. And uh, Slater beat Blackwell. But then Slater had to wrestle Stomper, and Stomper beat Slater. And this thing went on and on, this match, for almost an hour. I mean, the crowd was as exhausted as the wrestlers were by the time the Stomper finally got the back-to-back win over Blackwell and then Slater. But uh, he beat Slater with Gorgeous George Jr. having to get involved to help him out a little bit. Wow. Uh, so Stomper ended up winning the boat. Wow. Okay. It sounds like a tremendous night for the fans, except maybe for the last match. So I was I was sure you were going to say either Slater or Blackwell won the boat in this one since the Stomper 
was the only heel of the three. So I bet the fans were happy with you, though, and your father's winning the tag belts. Well, you're right about the Stomper, but he was basically the underdog, man. Uh, and luckily, the fans were really very happy about my dad and I's win. Uh, I thought the fans were going to carry my dad back to the dressing room on their shoulders, man, when it was over. I was like, son of a gun. I think the fans didn't know what to expect from somebody who was over 15 years old. But he really got over, you know, and, uh, and he was going to be coming back for two more weeks. But something very unexpected is going to happen that involved the least likely person, person of all hmm. to be hurt him and, uh, in that next couple of weeks. Hmm. All right. Here we go again, Stud. You're going you're gonna to leave us hanging, right? I, well, I kind of expect that. All right. <laughs> never mind. All right. So I know you aren't going to answer that. So how about the attendance? Lay that down for us. Okay, well, I'll, I'll I'll let everybody know soon enough about what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. Uh, about attendance, uh, before the war started, and you had a big match like this and a big card like this and a tournament that had gone on this long and a huge boat prize, we would have had 5,000 fans or maybe more. Might have sold that. Uh, the crowd was instead of the 5,000, it was only 3,000, man. Uh, and it was kind of look ahead, man, into the future of what uh, this wrestling war was going to do to the territory. Man. Okay, so I mean, only three thousand that that had to hurt. So speaking of the war, you really not talk much about that. So what was going on, like with the Knoxville Five during this week? I mean, had had things calmed down any? Well, absolutely not, Dave. Uh, I didn't have time last studcast to mention it, but uh, before our matches even started on that last Friday night, when we were out there in Chilhari Park, all five of those guys were in the parking lot where the fans were parking their cars, man. <laughs> right. And they were shaking hands and kissing babies like politicians, <laughs> man, and reminding everybody that their matches were going to happen the very next night. <laughs> And then that night, they also put flyers publicizing their matches on the fans' cars, like they had done the week before in the Coliseum, you know. <laughs> but I was kind of ready for it this time. Uh, so I had a bunch of guys ready, and they went out there just before the matches ended and jerked all the flyers off the cars out there, uh, you know. <laughs> but that's about as much as we did to uh, interrupt what they were doing. Right. I, I mean <laughs> – all right, so I mean, it's it's exactly the type of thing you said they didn't do in the Atlanta War and that it would kill the sport if it happened here. So, I, I mean, I hate to ask, but was there anything else they did? Yeah, man. They got on a local TV station. <laughs> and, uh, and and that was about the only thing that could keep them going. And, uh, you know, without a television program of some kind, they would have never had any chance at all. Mm. But uh, they managed to get on a local TV station. All right, but it, it was the only bad thing uh, about having grown your TV audience the way you had to that unimaginable 80 share on your TV station. Wow. All right, so with numbers like that, every general manager of every other TV station in the area was probably looking for a wrestling TV show. So what TV station did they get on? Well, <laughs> They got back on the same TV station I was on when I started Southeast, uh, the one that was on the top of the mountain, uh, close to downtown Knoxville, had a weak signal. It only went out about 40 miles, 
in all directions. So, uh, you know, it wasn't a powerhouse like the one, the TV channel we roll. Mm. All right. But don't say that. Don't tell me they got the same TV commentator that was there when you bought Knoxville. <laughs> I sure did, Dave. You mean the old warp your head off hole guy? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Not only did they have the warp your head off hole guy, but they had Ron Wright as the color color commentator. Uh, color, <laughs> that was a good choice too. Okay, all right. So, how what was their card and their attendance in Chilhowee Park the night after your boat and Coliseum matches? Well, I don't know how many of their cards, man. I don't have a lot of their cards like I have of my hires, you know, because I saw no reason to keep them, obviously, you know, and, uh, and I know that for a long time, they never had a big change in their talent other than the five wrestlers that they started with. They kind of stuck with that. They rarely had more than four matches. Uh, the same person that gave me an estimation of the size of their first crowd the week before, yeah. uh, said this one was even smaller than on their first night. His guess was maybe 750 people. I think they were somewhere around 1,000 in that first match. Uh, first night, uh, now it went down to 750 people. Yeah, see, that's what amazes me about how you've kept up with all of this information. You've got people that, that even if you can't remember something, somebody else is able to fill in the blanks, and that's uh, the research that you've done on the Studcast is absolutely Amazing. And this indeed has been another packed first part of this studcast. So, so much going on. All right. So, when we return, we'll take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be riding south where Austin Idol had worked his way up to his first match with the Hulkster. That is coming up after the break right here. The Tennessee stud Ron Fuller does something every month that only he can do. And it can only be heard on his YouTube Southeastern Rewind channel. He answers questions from fans all over the world about the sport that we all love in one hour shows called Ask the Stud. The sixth one in this series will join the others this Saturday, June 17, 2023. The beauty of this is anyone can ask a question of the stud, but no one answers them better than the man who did it all in wrestling. If you've not listened to one of these, you have no idea what you're missing. Subscribe now to YouTube's Southeastern Rewind and hear history again in Ask the Stud number six. Saddle up for a fascinating experience. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back in. And segment two, it is episode number 303 for the stud. Southeastern versus All-Star Hulk versus Idol. Episode number 303. All right, so... Let's get back into the second half and let's see what's happening down south. So lately, especially, Stud, since the Knoxville War started, when you've been discussing what was happening in Tennessee, obviously there was concern and tension involved there. But in recent Stud cast, when we get to the southeastern Gulf Coast territory, things seem to lighten up. So I'm just curious, how did you feel back in 1979 when you, when you would get a call from down south, maybe compared to when you would get a call from Knoxville, a business call, what was, what was it like? What were the differences? 
<laughs> That's a good question. But obviously, there's a world of difference, man, between what was going on down in the Sulphur, the Gulf Coast Territory, compared to the Tennessee Territory. All Knoxville calls for me. Before I even picked up the phone, man, it was horrible living during that. Uh, you know. So I got the regular calls, man, from three people down south. Uh, and they were usually filled with optimism. Uh, you know, I got calls from Louis Tillette. Uh, he would talk to me about the talent and the angles and the attitudes of the wrestlers. Uh, Roy Lee would call me uh, about the box office results and, and the everyday uh, business of running the company. Uh, questions about how to do this, what do you want to do about that. Then Charlie Platt would give me a call about, you know, the TV shows and, uh, Thankfully, almost all of it was good news, man, and it stayed that way for another month. Mm-hmm. All right. So, but, but, I mean, did I hear you correctly? Are you saying that things are going to get, um, get bad down south too? <laughs> well, I've been saying, man, for quite a while now, Dave, that 1979 was the most challenging career. <laughs> year in my wrestling career and uh, I wasn't exaggerating about it that's for sure all right hold, hold up right there just for a second stud so I'm sorry I asked that question but if things are going to get bad down south should we should we even get into it now I mean maybe you should tell us who was on the Gulf Coast card in the three major markets in the same week as the Knoxville card that we just talked about well, okay, man, I understand your concern, you know, and uh, it was very hard to handle the adversity of the <laughs> Knoxville War situation. Right. I agree. Let's ride into your Gulf Coast optimism, man, uh, <laughs> with the next card, man, in all three of those markets. All right. I appreciate that, Stud. I think that you're going to be talking about the, the card on Monday, June 18th, 1979 in Montgomery, Wednesday, June 20th in Mobile, and Friday, June 22nd down in Dothan. That's correct, man. And uh, those were the cards. Uh, uh, and then, then down in that Gulf Coast territory, they, they were usually the same cards for those three cities. And uh, all, and it was always in the same week at this Knoxville card that we just talked about. So this one had six matches on it. It opened with the Dargon twin, uh, number one. I don't remember their first name. So I'm going to call him number one against Bob Griffin. And then the second match was this Dargon twin number two against Herb Calvert. And the next match was going to be a special event. Eddie Sullivan, Billy Spears were facing uh, an injured referee, Larry Brock, mm-hmm. who was who were responsible for. And Larry was going to have a part in there that was going to be announced on the upcoming TV show. <laughs> so uh, there was a return Southeastern Championship match between former champion Ron Slinker. And the new champion, the Gladiators, managed by Billy Spears. There was another championship match on that card for the Southeastern Tag Belts. The champions, Samoans, managed by Billy Spears, were defending against Ricky Spears, I mean, Ricky Fields and uh, Terry Latham. And then there was a special main event. And for the first time in all three of these major cities, Terry, the Hulk Boulder, was going to be wrestling Austin Idol. Wow. Okay. That's a really good card. Two title matches, an injured referee with a mystery partner, and the first time Idol and Hulk met in the ring. So what happened on the TV show to set this whole card up? 
Well, the show opened with Charlie Platt sitting uh, sitting with the, the heavily taped up referee, let's say, let's call it that, uh, Larry Brock. Uh, actually, his bandage was covering 15 stitches over his left eye from an altercation with Eddie Sullivan three nights earlier in Mobile. Uh, Charlie apologized to Larry for what Eddie Sullivan, and uh, who has been managed by Billy Spears, had done to him. And Charlie said uh, Don Curtis, the Southeastern Commissioner, was working on a decision about exactly what to do with both of these guys for what they had done. Uh, Charlie said he wanted to show fans what had actually happened, and that was why he invited Larry out to open up the show. And that uh, Don Carson was irate about this. And uh, he was irate, uh, especially about injuries to referees. You know, it was never, never good for a referee to get hurt. So Charlie asked the control room to run the short video of what had happened. And it showed Austin Idol attacking the Hulk. Uh, and uh, it would have been that match where the Hulk was wrestling against Ox Baker. And, uh, you know, uh, Ox was out of the ring. He was out of it. Uh, Austin shows up down there. Uh, Hulk had Billy Spears in his bear hug. He got five minutes with Billy Spears, and he only got his hands on him with about one minute left, and here comes Ida. Then Eddie Sullivan enters the ring. Uh, now, neither Sullivan nor Idol should have been in the ring. Neither one of them should have been down there. But where this got really crazy was when Sullivan uh, got in the ring. He didn't go after the Hulk, but he went straight to Larry Brock. Uh, you know, who was trying to get control of uh, what was going on in the ring. And Sullivan hit Rock, hit Brock so hard, he knocked him out and knocked him cold and uh, took 15 stitches and closed close his eye. Wow. Uh, a really nasty cut. Uh, so Larry, you know, said he told him that, uh, you know, he would, he would, he told, uh, <laughs> when he would, he had to talk conversation. Larry was a humble guy. You know Larry Brock very well, my man. You right? Did. Yes, yes, absolutely. Sons, right? Yes. Larry was a humble guy and a very polite guy. You know, and uh, and he just basically said, you know, this was nobody's fault except for Spears and Sullivan, and that he had been talking to Don Curtis, Mr. Curtis, he called him, and uh, for the last two days about what, if anything, uh, Larry wanted him to do. You know, basically, Don said, Larry, what do you want me to do to these guys? So, so Larry said, told him he'd like to get in the ring with him and have a partner and then meet the two of them in a tag team match. Right. So Larry said after he told him that, who the partner would be, and Larry said he told him who the partner would be. He said, uh, Don said, well, i got to think about that last part, you know, and he said, I'll tell you what, you're going to be on TV <laughs> next Saturday. And he goes, uh, I'll tell you uh, during the show uh, what I what my decision is of what you're going to be doing, what what the match will be. So uh, you know, he said that way you can actually maybe tell Sullivan and Spears yourself what the punishment's going to be. <laughs> so so then the bell rang for the first TV match, and Ron Slinker, he got a great studio welcome, and uh, Billy Spears and his gladiator, who was a new Southeastern champion who just beaten Spears, uh, was going to be defending this belt against Spears again the next week. And so uh, Spears and Gladiator came to the set to watch the match. And uh, while Spears, you know, uh, uh, while Slinker took care of business, man, getting his win, he used the sleeper hold, and uh, he got his win as, as he normally did. Well, Spears spent the absolute whole time out there on the set. Uh, instead of talking about the Gladiator's upcoming, upcoming title match, 
With Slinker, he was totally focused, man, on the tag match with Larry Block. And this unknown partner, you know, what's going on here, Charlie, you know? <laughs> what's the punishment here from Don mm -hmm. Curtis, you know? What's what's he going to do? So, uh, you know, at the end of it, uh, you know, about the time that Slinker got his win, uh, naturally he spears through Sullivan under the bus, saying he never touched a referee, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and, and he wasn't the wrestler himself personally. He didn't need to be in the ring. And he definitely never touched Larry Buff. <laughs> and that uh, Eddie Sullivan was totally to blame for Larry Block's injury. <laughs> okay. All right. That sounds exactly like Spears. Not the, not taking the blame for himself. No accountability at all. How surprising. All right. So I loved it when the Hulk on last week's TV called Spears a weasel. So, all right. So what was next? Well, the Southeastern Tag Champions, the Samoans, managed by Billy Spears, uh, they were in the next one, and uh, they were the, now the manager of uh, Spears at this point was the manager of all three men that held both those Southeastern Championships, the Samoans and the Gladiators. So, man, those Samoans were monsters, <laughs> and they were dangerous, and they looked dangerous. <laughs> and uh, as always, man, they did uh, every TV. They left their two guys laying, and they, them boys weren't able to get up hard to leave the ring. <laughs> so during that short match, here comes Eddie Sullivan. He's the other wrestler in trouble, you know, with Larry Brock, and he comes out to the to Charlie's set and uh, and then uh, jumps in on the commentary. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, it's his time to throw Spears under the bus. And he claimed that Billy Spears told him to intentionally hurt Larry Bob because he didn't like it. <laughs> All right. So there was a lot of attention on this show being paid to the very well-liked referee, Larry Brock. So how about the personality profile? Who was on that? Well, the decision Larry Brock had been uh, waiting for, Don Curtis came in during the first two matches on TV. So, uh, you know, Larry knew what was going to happen at this point. And, uh, and he, so Charlie demanded that Billy Spears and Eddie Sullivan join him on the profile set. Wanted to do it live. I want you guys to come out here. I got news for you, right? Basically, you know, and so they were sitting uh, right next to one of the two crammed bleachers that were in the studio. And those bleachers were always packed. So Spears and Sullivan were both concerned, a little bit concerned about what Don Curtis was going to do about this. But, uh, you know, Charlie said, uh, you know, he, he started uh, started out, uh, Spears kind of took things over, as always. And he started out screaming, you know, uh, to Sullivan, I never touched Larry Bach. And then uh, Sullivan was hollering back at Spears, you told me to do it, right? And uh so Charlie got control, basically, and he told them, listen, guys, Don Curtis has, has decided what the punishment is for you guys. And it goes up, you know, and it's going to be that you're going to have a tag team match uh, with referee Larry Brock. And, uh, and uh, he, Don Curtis, is going to give Larry Brock uh, his choice of partners because, you know, of what you've done to him here. And then uh, so they they went kind of silent, man, and so did the studio, you know, and Charlie said that, to, you know, the two of you will be wrestling Larry Brock and his partner every night next week in every city that we have matches in. So uh, then they both started laughing, you know, and they, they hugged each other, man, and kind of their friendship was being repaired. And Billy, Billy Spears took over again as usual, and he was still laughing, and he said, this has to be a joke because Larry Brock is a referee. 
you know, <laughs> and a bad one at that. And then that means that we're only in the ring with just one man because we'll buddy that guy up worse than we did Larry Brock, you know. So Charlie stopped their celebration. <laughs> he said, uh, you know, uh, that being said, uh, Spears, he goes, uh, would you like to meet your second point? Uh, who you're going to be looking across the ring at every night next week? And Spirit said, absolutely. He said, we might as well get this over with right now. Get him out of here. We're bloody him up right now. And uh, so then that big overhead door in the back of the studio, it had never been raised during a TV show before. Mm-hmm. And that, the overhead door in the back of the studio started slowly lifting up. And uh, the studio was just deadly silent. And all of a sudden, in came Larry Brock with this huge 650-pound black bear. <laughs> a collar on him, and he had a long chain leash around his neck. And the bear headed straight for Spears and Sullivan. Man, like he knew he was going to wrestle these guys. <laughs> all the people in the building, he went straight for those two guys. <laughs> So Charlie said the studio exploded in complete pandemonium. He said some fans panicked. They ran for the front door exit, man. <laughs> just ran out of the building. He said some of them just froze in fear, and the others were standing and clapping and cheering. And he says Spears and Sullivan, he said, they were trying to get away, man. <laughs> and they, they were set, crammed in that tight space between the set and the bleachers. And he said, they ran into each other trying to get away and knock themselves down. And then he said, they crawled on their hands and knees under the ring, you know, to get away from the bear. <laughs> he said, and he said, the bear followed them. He said, and he said, they had to crawl out. And then they, when they crawled out, they got up into the ring trying to still get away from the bear. And the bear just followed them up into the ring. But Larry Brock, he's kind of holding the chain and the leash. And he's trying to get some control. And he said, both Spears and Sullivan scooted out of the ring. And they shot into the dressing room, Hill's dressing room, which is just a few feet away from the ring. And he said, the bear went right behind. Him. Before they got the dressing room door closed, the bear went in the dressing room. Right. <laughs> Everybody in that dressing room, Charlie said, came flying out there, all the rest are screaming, what the hell is going on here? And, uh, you know, so Charlie screams the, the director upstairs. And, you know, uh, uh, Wayne Register, right, was running the show. And he says, go, let's go to black. Let's go to black. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty wild scene. Oh, my God. All right. That had to be. It had to be one of the greatest moments in Southeastern television wrestling history, bar none. Had to be. I'm, I'm, I agree with you, man. I'm sorry I was in Tennessee that day, man. And wow. I missed it. You know, it, it was obviously the DV high spot of 1979 for sure. <laughs> so, you know, and uh, I'd give anything to have a tape of that show as a matter of fact. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. All so right. Charlie said after everything it was finally restored, after they got some some uh, everybody calmed down and the fans got back in their seats on the bleachers and uh, he said the last two matches went into the ring and Austin Idol got a win one of them and the Hulk closed out the show with another win with a bear hug. Wow. All right, that's a uh... That's how you do a TV show right there. So I'm sure there was never, ever another one quite like that. All right. So what happened on the card for the next week? Well, this was the Dargon Twins last week in Southeastern. 
Louis wasn't happy with those boys, and uh, Bob Griffin and uh, Herb Calvert got wins over both of them in the, in single matches. He didn't even put them in a tag. So uh, then it was time for the bear match, man. And so after Brock's experience, we had the trainer handle the bear this time, <laughs> both in and out of the ring, you know, because Larry was the he shouldn't have never had the bear been in control of the bear. So, you know, Larry, uh, in the tag team match, he never got touched in the match at all. Uh, and obviously he never tagged in. Right? I mean, so there was the bear against Spears and Southern. Sean uh, <laughs> said it was hilarious to watch <laughs> Spears and Southern argue about who's going to get in the ring with the bear. Right. <laughs> you know, and, uh, so basically, the bear went six wins and no losses for the week. You know, <laughs> he was going to be arriving in Knoxville soon. Actually, for the for the week of July fourth, it was uh, coming up. Wow! So championship uh, changed a record three times in three different cities in that week alone, and uh, wow, it's a big title week. And uh, so on Monday night, June eighteenth, in Montgomery, the Gladiator lost his southeastern belt. Back to Ron Slim. Three nights later in Panama City, where we always ran there on Thursdays, uh, Austin Idol won the Southeastern Belt from Ron Slinker. And then on Friday night, uh, June 22nd, Ricky Fields and Terry Latham finally got it done. And they won the Southeastern Belt from the seemingly unbeatable Samoans. Uh, everybody was amazed. What a celebration that was. And then in the main event, the Hulk and Austin they fought outside the ring all over all three of those buildings. Uh, there was, they were all, all finishes, no contest finishes, and no winner had to be stopped. And they were going to be coming back to face each other again the following week. But the next time, the stakes were going to be raised quite a bit because Hulk uh, was going to get his first chance to win the Southeastern Championship. Wow. Okay. So there was definitely a lot going on down there. So, what was the attendance in all three of those major markets? Well, Montgomery had its biggest house so far since we had opened the town, which was, uh, you know, we're basically about uh, 18 months in there at that point. Uh, Mobile was on fire. It, it had its fourth sellout in a row, 5,600. Nothing was right up there with uh, Mobile, man, 4,900 in the farm set. Uh, we, they were doing really good at that time. Wow. All right. So this is, I tell you, this has been another fantastic stud cast. The Knoxville situation is so compelling. It changes every week. I have no idea how this ends or what happens before it does end. The Knoxville Five now have their own TV show and seem to be testing the waters to see how far they can go. The Gulf Coast Territory must have been your anchor in the storm that was going on weekly in southeastern Knoxville. That Gulf Coast TV had to be an all-time classic, and I'm sorry to say, with time, we don't have enough to, again this week, for a learning tree question, one of my favorite segments on the show. Every studcast, it seems now, is just absolutely filled with information and wrestling history. So where do we ride next week, Stud? Well, the war continues, obviously, in southeastern Knoxville. And the Knoxville Five now had their own TV show, as you just mentioned. And, and I tell you, Dave, I can't remember. Uh, you know, it may have been only a 30-minute 
television show, wrestling television show, instead of a normal one-hour show. And I don't know for sure because i got to be honest with you, I never watched it one time in all of the time the war was going on. Wow. You know, I was basically having so much trouble dealing with all of that. I couldn't put myself through the aggravation of watching a television show with somebody else in in my territory. It was like, it, it was a terrible. I was a, it was a bad, bad situation for me, and I didn't want to extend it any further than I had to. So for the first time in years, Knoxville crowds were shrinking, you know. And and I couldn't stand watching the business that I'd worked so hard to build that had become basically the second largest drawing attraction in eastern Tennessee. The only thing that drew more people in eastern Tennessee to any sports event was the University of Tennessee football team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and uh, and to head back where we were, we're bad, you know, we're now we're instead of growing, we're shrinking, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really, really hard for me to deal with that. So our next week's card there uh, is going to begin with an angle that I that I would have never even considered doing uh, if we weren't at this point where we had a war going on. Uh, it would have never happened, uh, you know, and the war was basically going to. It was for wrestling survival, man, in that part of the country. So desperate times, man, required desperate measures. And uh, this angle had to be done perfectly. Or we were going to risk the future of a family member. And it was a it was a big time deal. So as we head south next to cast, the Rock and Gulf Coast territory was going to begin to lose some key players. Uh, some afforded players and uh, and the Booker, you know, Louis was going to have a harder time than he had been replacing them. Uh, the territory that had been my biggest delight in the last couple of months, talking about the Gulf Coast down there, it was going to slow its pace a little bit, uh, but it was still going to be a bright spot to me because Knoxville was such agony. So uh, it was my uh, first month of uh, being involved in a wrestling war. I was still energetic and uh, and I was still confident, but uh, I really needed success in, in at least one of those territories, and uh, mm. I was really depending on Gulf Coast to to keep kicking. Yeah, wow. All right, so this is truly fascinating—a truly fascinating real life story going on each week in these studcast episode after episode. It takes us on all kinds of rides. As, as always, I can hardly wait until we get back here next week. Any final words today, Ron? Well, I want to obviously thank, uh, again, uh, every listener for joining us today. And I, I hope you've enjoyed this this one. Uh, and I hope you'll be coming back for the next uh, cast. Please take care of yourselves and others. And may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at David Summers Productions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.